We have been in this series now uh, for a few weeks looking into Daniel and we're in chapter five of Daniel. And there's, I want to tell you up front, if it sounds a little repetitive, there's a couple themes that are popping up in Daniel. And so you're going to hear a little bit more about those today. Uh, but we're going to read from Daniel chapter five and we're going to do what we did last week. We're not going to read the whole story, but we're going to read a portion of it. And, and I'm hoping, listen, in our, in our culture in the United States, it's, um, it's still possible to win your neighbor to Christ. If you just turn off the news and forget about what political party people are affiliated with and start looking at people through the eyes of heaven, you start to realize that it's still possible to see people come into the kingdom and inherit eternal life. That's a big deal. And so God has called us to that task. Uh, And I think this church is more than capable and God has more than empowered you to do that. Amen. So we're going to look at this again. So why don't you stand to your feet, honor of reading the word. If you're new here today, that's the last time I'll ask you to stand up until the end. Don't start getting all nervous. We're going to start in Daniel chapter five, verse 13, read through 31. find it on the screen. You can find it in the Bible app under events. You can find Hope Community Church. We have an app that you can also download. And uh, you can also go back Apple iTunes, you get the podcast, or you can go to Apple Podcast and uh, get the sermons downloaded automatically on your phone every week. And some of the recent sermons, you uh, people are listening to them a lot. So I appreciate that. I get paid on number of downloads. So the board was telling me the other day, you better step it up. (laughs) Daniel chapter five, verse 13, say amen if you're ready. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, you are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king, my father brought from Judah. I have heard of you that the spirit of the gods Make sure you're reading that right, little g. The spirit of the gods is in you and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make it known to me its interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I've heard that you can give interpretations, solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, You shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be third ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Man, if we could find more leaders that would say those statements. I don't need your money or your power to do the right thing. Amen. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness, glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, He was brought down from his kingly throne. 
and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind and his mind was made like that of a beast. And his dwelling was with the wild donkeys and he was fed grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the most high God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets it over it, whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you and you and your lords and your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold and bronze and iron and wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath and whose all your ways you have not honored. Then from his presence, the hand was sent and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, mene, tekel, and person. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command and Daniel was clothed in purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. Darius the Mede received the kingdom being about 62 years old. Father, we thank you. God, when we can begin to see patterns show up in your word, we should pay attention to them. Lord, in our culture, in our time, your return is coming. We should be focused on the right things. We pray, Lord, that you'd help us do that today. We got together to be in your presence together and for you to transform the way we think. We pray you do that. In Jesus' mighty name, everybody said, amen. You may be seated. Now, if you were here last week or watched it online, you will ask yourself a question immediately because we went from chapter four dealing with Nebuchadnezzar and eating like a cow. Chapter five, we're introduced to somebody we haven't heard before. Now, don't confuse Belshazzar with no T with the Chaldean name for Daniel, Belshazzar with a T. There's a very close, but they're not the same. So the beginning of chapter five, we're introduced almost without, without, there is no background story on this, on this Belshazzar that we're considered as king. All we know from the beginning of chapter five is that here's Belshazzar. Bible's calling him king of Babylon and he's throwing a giant party, like a thousand people. He's got all the, all the officials there. He's got all his wives, all his concubines. Hopefully you, none of you are throwing a party like that. Today's modern time, that could get weird. He's throwing this giant party. The wine is flowing and something supernatural happens in front of him. Now, I need to give you a little backstory because what is actually happening in the book of Daniel is we, we've just experienced a fast forward, a major fast forward. Last week, we talked about Nebuchadnezzar 
for seven years acting like a cow eating grass as a, and then he lifts his eyes up to heaven and his mind's restored to him. And he proclaims that, that the, the one true God is the King of Kings and, and, and his kingdom is restored to him. Now we're going to fast forward. Nebuchadnezzar has been dead like 20 years. A guy named Belshazzar is acting as king, but isn't actually the king. His father is. There's a couple men in between Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar that are killed. Didn't last very long. So, so the guy who is actually king isn't there. I wonder if he just thought it'd be safer to stay somewhere else. So Belshazzar is his son. Now, when Daniel gives the interpretation of his dream, he says, Nebuchadnezzar, your father. So you have to remember in the, in the culture that we're dealing with, father could be substituted for grandfather. If you were the father of somebody, it could be generational. It didn't have to be a direct, I'm your father. That's not funny because I don't watch Star Wars. But um, So Nebuchadnezzar was more than likely Belshazzar's, Belshazzar's grandfather. Everybody with me? Nice little history lesson. What makes this story even more intriguing is that the Medes and the Persians are at the gate. They have taken over some key territory in Babylon and they are surrounding the city. Getting ready to take it over. Matter of fact, unbeknownst to Belshazzar, that night they will kill him. So it's not like Daniel interprets this this thing that happens, we'll get into it in a second, and all of a sudden they descend on the city. No, they were there. And the crazy part is, This army that's getting ready to take over Babylon is there and he's throwing a giant party. Party till it burns down. You know what I'm saying? So he's throwing this giant party. The wine's flowing. You've got... You've got all his wives and his concubines. Imagine the gossip that's going on there. You've got all the people in charge. You've got everybody together and everybody's getting drunk. And then he does the unthinkable. Now, if you rewind all the way back to when Babylon laid siege to Jerusalem, when Nebuchadnezzar was in, was in power, they took all the sacred things out of the temple. All the sacred things that God had had, had them build through, through Solomon. And when he built the temple and all the sacred utensils and the vessels, Nebuchadnezzar had taken them out of the temple and he had put them in storage. Belshazzar thinks this would be a great time to bring all those gold and silver vessels out of storage and I could let my wives drink out of them. Yeah. This is the party of parties. So he brings them out in his one last act of defilement. One last act of self-indulgence. Brings them out and everybody's drinking from them. The things of God. He's pretty drunk. 
the beginning of Daniel chapter 5 explains this setting where there's a lampstand that's lit and he looks in the direction of the lampstand and behind the lampstand is like a plaster wall. And he sees in his drunken state a human hand, not an arm, not a person, just the hand. Just a hand, writing four words on the wall. Now, could you imagine? Now, I know nobody ever here has seen anything crazy when they were drunk because you've probably never been drunk. Only the people online know what that's like. (laughs) He's freaked out. He's freaked out enough to stop the party. He brings in all of the sorcerers and diviners and magicians and all that stuff. He brings them in and um, he says, hey, these are, the, these are four words. Mene, mene, tekel, parison. You better tell me what they mean. Searches through all of them. All of them, they go back to them, but they can't figure it out. We don't know what, we don't know what it means. The Bible says that the queen comes in. Now this probably isn't his wife because his wife is probably drunk with everybody else. The queen, it's it's more than likely his mother because if it was his wife, the queen, she probably wouldn't have barged in the party and said, hey, I got the answer to all this. But everybody knows mom can do whatever she wants. It's probably his father's mother. She rolls in the party. And this tells you how fast forward we've went. Because Daniel's not a young man anymore. Daniel's not 20, he's not 30, he's probably in his 70s. She sees the frustration and fear overcoming Belshazzar. Because he's, he's seen this crazy thing happen. That evidently nobody else, everybody else is oblivious to. He sees it. He brings all the people that are supposed to know these things in. None of them can help. His, his, the queen comes in and she says, hey, do you remember that guy? It was one of the exiles. I think his name was Daniel. I think his name was Belshazzar. I think, you, you remember, you remember how he did all that stuff for your father, Nebuchadnezzar? You know how he, I interpreted all those dreams. Maybe we should look him up. Maybe we should bring him in. It had been such a long time had passed that they had forgotten even who Daniel was. So they go get him, bring him in before Belshazzar. And he's like, all right, nobody else can interpret this. This is what the word says. If you can interpret this, I'll put a robe of purple on you. I'll make you third in charge. Now, third in charge makes sense now because his father was the real king. He was just absent. He was the acting king. And he's like, hey, I can't make you second because that's me. So I'll make you third in charge. I'll put a robe around you, make you third in charge. You'll get a boost in pay. I love Daniel in his old age. Ain't nothing changed. He says, I don't need your power. I don't need your money but I'll interpret this for you. 
And then Daniel does something a little different than he had done before in interpretations for Nebuchadnezzar because now there's history. Daniel says, hey, Belshazzar, I need to remind you of something. Your father, Nebuchadnezzar, God set him up as ruler of the greatest kingdom on the earth. Whoever he said lived, lived. Whoever he said died, died. He had control of everything. But the problem was with Nebuchadnezzar is that he let his pride swell up within him till he thought he was bigger than God. And so God reduced him down to eating grass like a cow. Do you remember that? Yeah, it's in your family picture book. That whole seven years that mom doesn't want to talk about, that's it. Your grandfather was eating grass like a cow. Carve out on the temple walls. Daniel does, Daniel is so, hey listen, do you remember your history? And now you've done the same thing. Now you've taken the sacred things of God, not your little gods that are insignificant, that that have no idea the gods of gold and silver and bronze and wood, all these gods that don't know anything, that don't exist. But now you've taken the sacred vessels from the temple of the God of all gods, the King of kings and the Lord. You've taken those and you've defiled those. So here's what those words mean. They mean your days have been numbered. You've been put on the scale and found wanting. And your kingdom is over. It's over. So if you remember way back to the beginning of this conversation, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream he couldn't remember. And it was the, and it was the, the image, the, like the four, like the image with the gold. And then it went down and had the feet of clay and, 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 and iron. And it was four kingdoms. This is the culmination of the end of the Babylonian empire. This is a fulfillment of Daniel's interpretation of one of Nebuchadnezzar's dreams. He says, you've been found wanting and your kingdom is going to end. And sure enough, that night, now there wasn't a big battle. There wasn't a war. The Medes and the Persians descended on the city and they overtook it and they killed him that night. There's some themes that run all the way through Daniel, all the way through Daniel. And, and one of them is it seems like nobody can get the timing right. It's, it's true in our culture today that, that the church is failing at getting the timing right. Because isn't it ironic that the last day of your reign, when the enemy is at the gates, that you would throw a party? I don't know about you, but I would probably be planning an escape route. Like, let's get all the really smart people together and see how we can overcome this. Let's get all the smart. We're the greatest nation on the planet. Let's get everybody together and figure out maybe there's a way. Remember that Daniel guy that said that God could do anything. Maybe we should try his God and be serious about it. I remember my grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar, got straight at the end of his life and it changed him. Maybe we should try something like that. Not Belshazzar. He says, they're, they're ready to come in. Let's party. Let's do the most selfish thing that we could possibly do. Let's, let's do the most self-indulgent thing we could possibly do. While everything is falling apart around us, let's focus on us. Hmm. 
I don't know, maybe the church has done that for the last 20 years. While we were trying to figure out our best life now, the culture around us was going to hell. While we were, while we were trying to figure out how to, how to get nicer things and, and, and praying to God that we wouldn't experience any suffering. Our culture was going straight to hell. You've, you've heard me talk about this for, for a long time. If you've been a part of this church, I loathe the prosperity gospel. I mean, I got like when I hear little glimpses of it, I just like break out in hives. Because I remember the guy that wrote two thirds of the New Testament that had more of an impact on the new church than any other person to ever breathe a breath outside of Jesus himself and his introduction to Jesus went a a little bit like this. I'm going to show you how much you have to suffer for my name. And then somehow along the line, the church turned that in to we're going to be the best looking, the best paid, the be- like there's never going to be a problem. Everything's going to be perfect because God wants us to be a bunch of, oh, I was going to say sissies, but that would be insensitive today. So what the church did turned into was not a strong overcoming, being able to work through anything and trust God in any circumstance. It became a fearful running church that anytime there was any hardship or sorrow, we would look up to God and go, why are you doing this? And we've been partying while the whole place burns down. You know, in reality, we're supposed to be getting ready for the return of Christ. Wasn't that the whole deal? He says, the angels look at the disciples who are standing there watching Jesus ascend, and they're just dumbstruck, and they're standing there, standing there. The angels come down and say, hey, he's going to return in the same manner that he went. And then through the New Testament, through the Gospels, Jesus is saying, you better be ready. When I come back, you better be doing the right thing when I come back. And he's telling parables about it, parables about it. Matthew chapter 25, he tells a parable about, about 10 virgins and, and five who prepare and five who don't for the bridegroom. They wake up in the middle of the night and five of the, the oil in their lamps, they didn't take enough. And so they can't figure out the path to the bridegroom. But the five that did prepare, the five that were expecting, the five that, that said, hey, he's coming. We need to get ready for this. We're prepared and made it. Belshazzar is partying, self-indulgent partying, right before the whole thing collapses. There's something just selfish about that. James talks about selfishness in James chapter 4. James chapter 3, verse 16. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there'll be disorder in every vile practice. Philippians chapter two, three, Paul writes this, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. First Corinthians 10, 24, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. I'm going to tell you right now, indulgence is the enemy of the gospel. Now, you have to remember though, I, we just came out of a sermon series that I told you nobody can decide how big your house is, don't, don't misinterpret that. 
What I'm coming at today is that the church is praying for less turmoil. We're praying for less, Lord, don't, don't, don't let my life have any, have any fear in it because, not because you took the fear away, but because there was nothing to fear. Don't, don't let any bad thing happen to me. Don't, 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 don't let any hardship come on me. And the way I know you're faithful is if my life is easy. Is, is that, is that, that work for anybody? Anybody been able to pray that prayer for the last 10 years and went, man, this is easy. I wake up and go to sleep. The church in America lives such a stark, contrasted life to that of the gospels or the New Testament when the, when the, when the gospel was actually reaching the whole world. We live in massive amounts of comfort, self-indulgent. So here's, here's what this turns into. So Belshazzar is not concerned about his kingdom. He's just concerned about himself. We're going to party tonight. I don't care. The, the problem is Jesus has an encounter with rich young guy and the rich young guy says, Hey man, I keep all the rules. Tell me which ones are the most important to keep. And Jesus says, okay, I'll give you a couple. Love the Lord, your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Love God with everything you have, everything, everything. And then he said, there's one more that I want to let you know. That's sort of like the first one. Love your neighbor as yourself. Oh, that's going to be hard to do because I like me. He says, the whole thing is wrapped up with loving God with everything you have and then loving people. So you just heard Paul write a couple times, man, put other people before you. If the whole thing, the church cannot be self-indulged and watch the outside go to hell. Amen. We can't be inside complaining about a boo-boo when the outside is actually going to hell. We can't be inside complaining about the wine when the outside is going to hell. And so what the church has done for decades is we've been inside partying going, look at this stuff. God's blessing us and, and look at your best life. And this is, man, it's, it's, just, it's just smooth sailing from here. You come to Jesus, smooth sailing from here. Don't worry about anything. He's going to take care of you. You'll get an automatic raise. Just come down to the front, raise your hand, and your boss is going to love you. The trouble is you went back to work the next day and your boss still didn't love you. And then you had to figure out how to respond to him like Jesus would, which is different from normal. So I started thinking about it. I started thinking about it. What about me would cause people that don't believe in Jesus to listen to me? What about me? What is it about me? Okay. Love, love God with all your heart. Love people like you love yourself. All right. So that means, that means when I go into a restaurant in the, in the 16 year old waiting on me, who's 16? Everybody understands that, right? Do you remember when you were 16? Oh, that's right. You were the smartest person on the planet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember that too. Yeah. So now you're 45, 50 years old and you go in and you lose your mind at a restaurant over a 16 year old who does not know what they're doing. 
And then the story we tell the next day is, I let them have it. And then we come to part church and party like it's 1999. Oh God, take away all my fear. Take away, Lord, just give it easy to me. Lord, just let your blessing fill my life. The trouble is, we've talked about this. Jesus hung on the cross and said, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And we can't even go to a restaurant and do that. When's the last time you went to a restaurant, didn't get what you wanted and said, hey, I forgive you. You obviously don't know what you're doing. <laughs> it's not a big deal. I'm even going to leave a tip. Selfishness is the exact opposite of the gospel. Jesus came to serve, not to be served. He came to give his, give his life as a ransom for many. And, and we're worried about getting taken advantage of. It looked like in the trial before Jesus was crucified that he was absolutely taken advantage of. And sometimes living out your life do, might not look like you're winning everything. Living a life following Christ, caring about the world more than ourselves, might not look the most successful you could ever be. You may not look like you win every argument. Please, dear God, help some people in here hear that today. You don't have to win every argument. Don't look at each other. Don't do it. It'll ruin your weekend. It'll ruin your weekend. Baby, I didn't hear a word he said. I didn't hear a word he said. I wasn't looking at you. It just hit me when I was studying this that they're partying while everything is collapsing. And we talked about this last week. It should grieve us. How I treat people. How I treat people should be a catalyst for them knowing God. Amen? And trust me, listen, you're going to get the opportunity this week to make the decision. I guarantee it might be tomorrow. It might be on your way home from church. Stay off the horn. Don't give anybody the finger. Just, I was driving down the road yesterday and, and, and somebody pulled out in front of somebody. I mean, it was full on. I'm like, dude, you didn't hit him. Everything's fine. Are you kidding Ease up a little bit. Ease up a little bit. The world doesn't need more tension. It needs less. And if there's no peace in the church, how can we expect peace outside? We have to get the timing right. Is there an opportunity to party? Yeah, when we're in heaven. Wednesday. It's going to be a party Wednesday. Should we, should we be so consumed about ourselves that we don't see the suffering around us in the world, that we don't see our culture going to hell every second? My prayer is, Lord, get me off of the things that I want. Get me off of the things that irritate me. Get me off of the things that I think are so important. I'm willing to, I'm willing to tell somebody off about. No, no, no. Get me off of that stuff, Lord, and let me see people through your eyes. Get me off of the constant worry about whether I'm going to make it or not. So that leads me into the, the, the next thing. And this is a theme that's come throughout this whole first five chapters of Daniel is that the world has no answer to fear. How many times now have we had a dream 
dream Nebuchadnezzar doesn't remember, a dream he does remember. We have visions, we have all these things, and, and the world's got no answer for it. The king be losing sleep, losing his mind, no answer for it whatsoever. And yet here we are, Nebuchadnezzar's been dead 20 years, Belshazzar's in charge, and he's experiencing the same exact thing. He's drunk, he sees handwriting on a wall enough to make him fear like crazy, enough to make him to stop the party and bring in all the magicians. And at the end of the day, the world has nothing for him. I love it the way Daniel points it out. The gods of gold, silver, bronze, wood, they're not going to fix this for you. They're not going to fix this for you, but I know the one who can. The church must be a place where fear is overcome with the presence of God. Did you hear that? We will have nothing to offer the world. Every time Daniel steps into a circumstance where a king is filled with fear, he offers them the God of gods. He doesn't just offer them interpretation. He doesn't say, I got this, leave it alone. He says, the God of all creation, the God of gods is the one who has the answer. The answer to your fear right now is not a bunch of magicians or a bunch of baloney. It's the God of gods. The church forgot that. We've forgotten that as a church. It's the hallmark of becoming a follower of Christ. I do not have to fear anymore. Amen? It's the hallmark. We receive eternal life. Jesus has won the victory. And so whatever happens to us on earth, Paul tells us, pales in comparison to what is coming. We have the eternal hope that Jesus died and resurrected and prepared a place for us. Amen? So there's no part of what, it, what our experience is on this earth for this limited amount of time that we have to be fearful. But what the church sees, is, or what the world sees, is that the church is just as afraid as everybody else. And what's even more is we're trying all their solutions. Oh, I'm going to get some emails. Mm. You can't wrap yourself up in enough oil to make the fear go away. You can't read enough books to make the fear go away. I'm not saying all that stuff is bad. I'm saying it has to be him first. Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, all of them. Daniel, make sure, listen, the God of, the King of Kings is the one who's going to take this fear from you. So watch. There's a, there's a story in, in, in the New Testament where Jesus gets on the boat with the disciples. Some of you remember that story. He um, gets on the boat with the disciples and he is, they're, they're fine. This isn't a yacht. This isn't like a 60 foot yacht with state rooms. It's kind of a small boat. Mark records it, Mark chapter four, verse 35. On that day, when the evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side and leaving the crowd, they took of him, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him and a great windstorm arose and the waves were breaking into the boat. So the boat was already filling with water, by the way. But he was in the stern asleep on the cushion. I love that. And they woke him and said to him, teacher, 
Do you not care that we are perishing? Listen to me. That's the message of the church today. We, we have ceased to pray. Do you not care that they are perishing? It's about us. They say, don't you care that we're suffering here? Jesus wakes up. What? Boat's taking on water, man. What are you doing? Oh. Peace. What are you guys worried about? Because here's the point of Christianity. The whole point is that God is not going to insulate you from every, every scenario that could be fearful. He's saying, because he's with you, there is no reason to be fearful. Wouldn't it have been easier in our modern day American Christianity for Jesus just to stop the wind and the waves before they came? That's the way we like it now. We like Jesus in the boat, no winds and no waves. That's the best part. Because I can just tell Jesus to wave his little finger while he's sleeping and, and there will be no wind and waves because after all, Jesus doesn't like to sleep in a rocky boat. No, but what if this parable is true? What we find out is that even though we believe in Jesus as our Messiah, it doesn't negate the fact that there will be a storm every now and then. But the opportunity to fear does not mean you have to be fearful. Just because there's an opportunity doesn't mean you have to take advantage of it. So the opportunity for fear will be there tomorrow. It will be there the next day and the next day and the next day until you breathe your last breath. But the overcoming testimony of the church is fear was in my face and I didn't have to go along with it because the savior of the world is still in the boat with me. Amen. Amen. And so over and over and over again in Daniel, you have these guys that are I mean, Daniel's testimony of Nebuchadnezzar is this. Whoever lived, whoever he wanted to live, lived, and whoever he wanted to die, died. And yet he lived in fear. Nobody can tell me what this means, and I can't even sleep. Daniel will come in. The answer to your fear is him. Daniel will come in. The answer to your right mind, being right-minded, is him. Daniel will come in. The answer to being clear-headed is him. It's nothing else. You can conjure up all these magicians, all these sorcerers, all these diviners, and they're not going to be able to answer it for you. He is the answer. Doesn't mean that the enemy won't be at the gate. It doesn't mean that the, that hard times aren't coming. It doesn't mean that, that you might not, it doesn't mean that you won't lose your job. It doesn't mean that your kids won't go sideways. They're kids. It doesn't mean that you won't ever fight again with your, your spouse. It doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that when you get out of college, you might not find it. It doesn't mean any of that. It means that when all that stuff happens, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords is still in my boat. And so how do we ever answer the world if we're gripped by the same fear they are? Come to Jesus and you'll still have the same fear. That's not the testimony of the church. Matter of fact, Paul, when he was writing to his protege, Timothy, told him that. He says, listen, I remember the faith that you have. It went through your grandmother and your mother. There's a lineage of faith in your family. I believe it's in you. And then he says this, God didn't give us a spirit of fear. 
Timothy evidently was struggling with something, scared of it. Timothy, I need to tell you something. God didn't give you fear. But these next things he talks about is the testimony of the church. Power, love. He has empowered you enough to do what he's called you to do. He's given you love enough to love people. In a sound mind, he's given you the ability to think clearly. I know the boat's rocking. I know there's water coming in. But if Jesus is asleep at the stern, I got nothing to worry about. If Jesus is asleep at the stern, can you lean in for a second? That means he's not answering your prayer in the moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was a guy named Job that said, I looked for you all over the place and couldn't find you. But then he says, I know that your plan is good for me. He actually says it like this. When you have tried me, I'll be as pure as gold. I'm good with the place you're walking me through. Not every single prayer that you lift up is going to come back instantly. Oh, I, I didn't mean that. I didn't want to hurt you. Oh, it's, it's, it's all going to be, you're going to feel better tomorrow. It's, it's all going to be fine. I'm going to take away every, every little ounce of pain. It's going to be all perfect. No, no, no. Sometimes Jesus is sleeping in the front of the boat. And we got to trust that the boat's going to be okay because he's just in it. Sometimes even if you don't get an answer, it doesn't mean that you should start fearing. It means you should double down on the fact that he's still with you. That anxiety shouldn't be a part of our test like I'm so worried about. No, he's still there. He's still there. Whether he's talking or not, he's still there. So this is it. We're going to wrap this up. The reason all of this is so important is this last thing. Daniel gets in front of him and he says, hey, listen, this is what it means. It means you've been found wanting, your days are numbered, and your kingdom is over. Okay. There's a thing that we've forgotten as the church, as believers. Daniel reminds this guy, Belshazzar, that his days are numbered. I don't think about that very often. Got a limited of time breathing this oxygen in and out. It is numbered. It is appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. That's that's the Bible. It's all numbered. We all have a date. You want to call it a date with destiny? We all got a date when the thing's gonna shut down and not run anymore. Amen. That's all. That's that's the reality of life. So Daniel's reminding him, hey, listen, man, your days are numbered. You've been wasting it on this silly stuff. So the next time you start to fear a little bit, the next time you start to flip out on somebody, the next time it's just like, oh, you know what? This is the most important thing I could be doing now. Take it in the context of I may only have X amount of days left and see if it really rises to the top of importance. important things you could be doing now, the most important conversations, the most important arguments. Here's what I'm finding. The more I take into context that my life is limited in the number of days means I'm going to argue about a lot less stuff. Amen? I'm going to have a lot less dumb conversations about things that don't matter. Once you get intentional about 
called me to love on people and not be fearful. And I've only got a certain amount of days to pull that off. Amen? Stand your feet. I know everybody's like, wow, this is the most encouraging sermon this Sunday morning. Listen, if the world outside is going to believe anything we say in here, we got to start being serious about it. we got to stop being petty. Stop arguing with people about stuff that doesn't mean anything. And we got to start caring about what's important.